0: Cut. Go and do useful things you will. Oh, I said it. You will.
1: Hello, Hello and welcome to Diversify. My name is Holly. And my name's Kate. And we got that almost at the same time this time. We're getting better. Well my Wi-Fi is a lot better this time. She's moved to East London, ladies and gents. Disaster. Where the
2: best Wi-Fi is. <laughs> How are you, Kate? Can we talk about the worst spell check in the world happened when I was writing the questions? And I'm so sorry, guest, but I accidentally auto-corrected your name to T. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, you probably didn't even notice, but it's it's horrific and I'm <laughs> I'm pretty sure <laughs> he's
1: looking. Speaking of tea, um we've got some guests coming to spill some.
2: Wasn't that right like before. ultimate Low point for is Holly.
1: I mean, it would have been better if he was a drag queen, but as far as I know, he's not. Uh, welcome to the podcast.
0: <laughs> Let's not rule anything out.
1: Once Drag Race UK's had a few seasons, they'll probably do Celebrity, and then it's your moment.
0: I can't sing, is that no. a big part of it?
2: No. They have to lip sync.
0: My problem is I can never remember lyrics. I can remember dialogue really well, but if I, I could listen to the same song every single day and not remember the lyrics of the chorus.
2: Yeah, that's not ideal for a drag queen. Um, You could just open your mouth and close it a lot.
0: I feel like I'm very much going to become a meme, but that's fine.
1: (laughs) I mean, there was a famous bit in Drag Race where somebody just forgot to learn the words and she had a mask on. And uh, in the lip sync, she was just like, "Um, I'd like to keep it on, please. And everyone was like, what are you doing? And then they forced us to take it off and it was the worst lip sync. And now you can buy like COVID masks, which say, I'd like to keep it on, please. Um, So you could totally be me. Um, So your name is Tez, it's not T. Yes.
0: Although without the E-A, sure.
2: I quite like that. From now on, we'll just be H-K and T. That's really nice, I like that. (laughs) <laughs> How are you doing, Tess?
0: I'm good, thank you very much. I was saying today, you know, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. But also, it happens to be the best day of the year in the whole country, and I am pretty much recording this early afternoon, and I'm pretty much back-to-back in interviews and meetings till 11pm. So I am missing this, but as I said, off-screen, off-record, delighted about it.
1: If we get some hot takes in then we might even finish like 15 minutes early and you can just go out there, have a cup of the tea and sit there and learn your lip sync.
0: What would be my song?
1: Oh, i tell well, you what. I mean, I
0: mean, how would you know?
1: <laughs> Let's get to the end. No, this is a great, yeah, yeah, this is great. Let's get to the end and we'll see whether we can figure out what your... Okay. Uh, we've got a
2: special question about. that we, we don't tell people we're going to ask them and they would never know it was coming unless they'd listen to any other episode of Diversify. But uh, we're going to ask you that question and I think that we've got collective powers and we'll be able to figure out what your lipstick song is. Um, so we've asked you on today, you've written an amazing book, which we've had a chance to look at. Can you tell us a little bit about where the book came from, why you came up with the idea, and that's the two questions that I would like you to ask. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel like there was a third question, but your third was. question was, was more of a request. <laughs> Um, thank you. Uh, it's called The Secret Diary of a British Muslim, aged thirty and three quarters. And it's a book about my teenage years growing up in Blackburn, Lancashire, England, Great Britain, UK, Europe, Earth, uh, in the 90s. It was a really fun book to write. So it's partly just a really fun memoir about funny stories, part capturing all those sad details and things that I went through and partly a snapshot of life in Britain through the eyes of a particular subculture in a particular moment of history. Uh, So I think it is different things. Editor keeps telling me to stop saying this, but the idea came from my editor. Me and my manager got in touch with an editor a couple of years ago. And we were going back and forth on an idea called Islam for Infidels, which is kind of like a fun name for Islam for dummies. And then we went back and forth a few times and they wanted some like sample chapters, which I didn't have the time to write because I was very busy. And then the week Covid hit, we got in touch with a new editor who I think replaced the one we were talking to. And she came with the idea of writing a memoir. It was literally almost a year to the week uh, because it was just as Covid had hit. And I thought, what a great project to undertake in these times. And then I started writing it over the summer. Finished my first draft in September, then the painful editing process yes. uh, which took just as long as writing it and then did the audiobook and now it's ready for release and I'm having these really fun conversations with people, I'm talking about it, but yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of it, like I think it's the best, it's the best I could do, which is all anyone can ask really.
1: I'm getting some like um, Adrian Mole vibes, obviously the name, but it's just that kind of like innocence but not.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So yes, yeah, so I didn't actually keep a diary at the time, although I did have a college diary, but that was more for recording homework and obscure sports results. So if you want to know who knocked out Amelie Maresmo in Wimbledon 2001, uh, I could probably tell you that. That was what I thought was important to record as opposed to the horrendous life details that I went through during that period. But yeah, so it was like uh, talking to my friends and family and getting stories from them and, and memories from them. And, and it was just a really, really fun process. Just, it's just super therapeutic more than anything else. And I'm just delighted that some people would want to read it. I, ho- I hope they like it because I think it's good, but I don't know how good it is.
2: Well, it's funny. And it's, it's almost like it's sort of an in- innocent child in this world that isn't quite as innocent and kind of their sort of bird's eye view of it. That's
0: kind of the idea I got. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, because we're talking about Adrian Moll. We? You know, yeah. <laughs> immediately, I hadn't actually read Adrian Moll before my editor started talking to me about it and what, and what the hook of the title could be and stuff. And I was like, that's really funny. I need to read that book now. So I did read it. And like, I read a couple of books just to give me an idea of structure and uh, the diary formats and also memoir formats and, and how to structure memoirs and stuff. It was really good, like, doing all that research stuff and the prep for it. Got to do an Excel spreadsheet, which I'm a big fan of. So that was possibly the biggest highlight of the entire book was getting to do an Excel spreadsheet. So I, I was happy with that. And I refer to it extensively. Um, Did
2: you use Excel sums and magic to make numbers happen? Or-
0: no, unfortunately not. I, I do love, I do love doing that, but unfortunately it wasn't needed in this case. But you know, I got to center stuff and I got to align it and all that stuff and... Merge, merge text. Oh, merge, oh. oh, mm, Come on now, let's keep this PG. I love a merge text.
2: (laughs) What was it like growing up in Blackburn? Can you give us a a Lonely Planet guide of Blackburn as a teenager? You know what? In the 90s. When you're you're, (laughs) you're a
0: kid, (laughs) yeah, when you're a kid, and we didn't do like domestic holidays. So apart from like going to Blackpool, which is super close to us, like it's, it's like a 40 minute drive so blackpool. Uh, yeah probably going to the blackpool and the odd trip to manchester or whatever and that was mainly to go to the airport we didn't really do domestic holidays so blackburn is really all i knew and because we had quite a big football team when i happened to be in my formative years our football team was really big i didn't think anything other than like blackburn is a happening place uh, and a big place that everyone will know because i'm from here and my football team is really big and stuff and so i didn't realize how much of a small and obscure place we were until i left blackburn and even then, I only went to uni, like up the road to Lancaster, so it was mainly when I moved down south and people were like, where is, like, obviously they'd heard of it, but they were like, where, where, and I'm like, what, you don't know where Blackburn is, <laughs> but it was great, like, it's, it's a lot leafier than people would really, would think for, for a, quite an industrial town, very hilly, so we all have really good calf muscles, because uh, we <laughs> constantly walk, obviously, at that age as well, we'd be walking everywhere. I really enjoyed it, it was a really good place to live. There's a few stories in the book that are quite, I think, hair-raising about some experiences, but those weren't day-to-day experiences. Day-to-day was like having fun with my friends and going out and climbing trees and playing football and getting chased by people because we're playing football in the wrong place and all those sorts of things. Like, it's just a really fun time. But looking back at it now from a slightly more, you know, for want of a better word, walk perspective, a, a more sociological perspective, like it was a very interesting place to grow up and a very interesting time period as well. Because I'd forgotten like, there's things that I write about in the book that were happening around us as opposed to to me. Um, and I remember like in April 1999, just for one example, in the space of two weeks, we had the three Soho bombings, so the big Soho bombings. Um, so there was, they were in Brixton, Brick Lane and Soho. And then, Columbine happened in between them. And then Jill Dando got murdered just after the third bombing. And that all happened in the space of three weeks. And like, that's not something I would have realised until I was writing and researching the book and going what else was happening in the world whilst I was doing whatever I was doing. And I remember all of those events and I was like, I did not realise they happened so close together. There were so many things happening. For example, like the book finishes on spoilers, (laughs) 9-11. That is the book end of the book because it just happens to finish on September 2001. That is the end of the story. But then there were clues leading up to 9-11 that you would have completely missed because you didn't have the foresight that 9-11 was going to happen. But when you look back and you look at actually what was happening in the world, outside of the UK, outside of Europe, there were signs that were pointed to something quite bad, but we just never connected the dots. And I thought, wow. So when stuff happened, for example, when the US bombed Afghanistan in 1999, and I was in Pakistan, and I remember listening to the news story in Pakistan, thinking, oh, that's not right. But I would have never connected, obviously, when 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 9-11 happened, I didn't retrospectively in my memory bank at that age go, oh, my God, of course, because the US bombed Afghanistan in the summer of 98 when I was in Pakistan. I didn't it didn't cross my mind. But now i would be like, oh, yeah, there were things happening and there were random hijackings happening in the Middle East and stuff that I'd completely forgotten about and didn't join the dots with and stuff. And I didn't see anyone else join those dots either. So just it was a fascinating time to grow up in a time where we didn't have the internet. So we weren't making these connections and stuff and there was no social media. So people weren't talking about it and stuff. You were literally just talking about it in your own villages. And so, yeah, I think it was a fascinating time to grow up and a fascinating time to capture through the eyes of a child.
1: I think it's really interesting because I always used to think that as like 90s kids, we didn't have any big hardships. Boy, was I wrong. But like, Mm. I remember like even after 9-11 being in secondary school and being like, what is our thing? Well, we've never had war on our turf. At the time of kind of Blair, education, 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 it was all spend, spend, spend. We were like this final generation of innocence. And I know that part of it is we look back with rose-tinted glasses, but I really do think there nine eleven and there is post-9-11, and you can now see looking back what led to it but really they are like two stark differences i don't know if you've read the book them well so john ronson he wrote it before 9-11 it's about extremists and they have islamic extremists and then they actually have alex jones before he became like oh wow left-hand man of the president and um he writes a foreword post nine eleven and is like it's really interesting looking back at this and there was this uh guy who was like big islamic extremist at the time and nobody took him seriously alex jones was like i'm gonna go to this special place where they burn owls in the forest and you no know, everyone was laughing at him and it, it, it's so silly and then you're like oh my god this was a different world <laughs> like
0: yeah i i honestly think the internet has just as great as it is and it allows us to speak which is amazing it has also connected so every village had its idiot slash dangerous individual and that was fine if they were the only one pissing into the wind but now the internet has allowed all of these village idiots to connect to each other and therefore empower each other and therefore go deeper into the rabbit hole and as we know with with devastating consequences both physically and I think psychologically as well. I think history will study this time period very, very interestingly, I think, about how much we've been conditioned in such a short period of time. Some of it for the good, sort of like in the way that like, like sort of like bigotry towards LGBT people was kind of mainstream, even up until like probably about 10 years ago, I would probably see on stage like someone going on stage and looking at a group of lads and looking at their shirts and going, oh, we've got some gays in or whatever. And then and that being a punchline. Whereas that just went, it just no one said it, it just went by itself. And I think part of that is because of the internet and the good that it's done. But then there's also like the, the flip side, which is, well, it's also allowed all of the Al Qaeda types to connect and all of the ISIS types and all the EDL types and all the, you know, the, the people who empowered themselves to vote for Trump and all that sort of stuff. And so it's the, the flip side of it. it. It sometimes makes me think, is the good worth the bad?
2: I'm quite scared of incels at the moment. There you go. I got a bit of abuse on one of the comedy clips that I shared online from a lot of incels saying women aren't funny uh, except to other women. And I I made an OnlyFans account specifically for this guy and sent him the link publicly. And then I had this moment afterwards where I was like, oh my God, they're coming for me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because we think it's funny, right? We think incels are funny. But at the same time, incels are the sort of people that end up going into a school with a gun and um yeah
0: mm, yeah yeah exactly you
2: just don't take it seriously well it's
1: absolutely what's happening in america like it is a very unique time isn't
0: it yeah yeah definitely and i would love to be able to look back at this time and study it somewhat because i think it is fascinating obviously there's a lot of different things as well but the conditioning of an entire planet through the internet i think is a fascinating topic but then who knows what things will be like is this just going to accelerate infinitely and where's the end game like where does it end up or is that does it reach a point where it just because there's an equilibrium and then it's like this then for a long time until something else happens i just, yeah, I'm fascinated by it. Or do we just, is there going to, or in 50 years, is it all going to be Mad Max because of climate change? I don't know.
1: Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote Sapiens, he wrote a follow-up to it. It's one of those things he's like, I'm not saying this will happen. I'm saying this might happen so that we can decide whether we want it to happen or not. But here's the possibility. Basically, one of the things he suggests is it might be that we're coming to the end of Homo Sapiens. And that doesn't mean that um, there's going to be this massive explosion and nuclear war it does mean that we might evolve into this new thing, like we were Neanderthals. So whatever this new thing is might be like kind of what we would consider a cyborg.
2: (laughs) Can we go back to your book? Because I wanted to ask you a question. At the end of it, you talk about how the life that you thought you had never ends up being the one that you were meant to have, and actually that's better. I was just wondering, what did you think was going to happen before you ended up being a comedian and TV show host and... Author. well i
0: i i was a civil servant you know there's ambitions i had in the book which i'd write throughout the book which then didn't quite happen ended up falling upwards and going to one of the best universities in the country which is a place i didn't want to be and then ended up doing a degree which i fell out of love with completed it because i you know kind of had to and then realized that i didn't want to work in science and I was started looking at graduate jobs and I thought, what do I want to do? At that point, I started becoming more interested in foreign affairs and politics and that sort of stuff. And so the FAST dream, which is the Civil Service Graduate Programme, just really, really appealed to me. And so I applied for it and I'm lucky enough to be successful and get on. So I moved to London and I became a civil servant and I worked in the Home Office for 10 years. Like Looking back now, like I was just not suited to a day job at all, but that is what I was doing. And by the time I left, you know, I'd graduated to middle management. I was working on really, really interesting things. Like just before I'd left, like my last job in the Home Office, I was working in modern slavery. Uh, Stopping it, that is. Um,
1: (laughs) That's an important clarification in 2021. Yeah, put it in the show notes. Yeah, Uh,
0: you know, the anti-human trafficking unit. Because I was conscious of the fact that I hated the Tory government so much, even the coalition, I was really conscious about where I worked. So, I mean, the Home Office is a very divisive department and even more so now than it was even five years ago. But there's no pro-slavery argument. There's no pro-slavery lobby. So that was a very comfortable area for me to work in because I was like, this is just doing the right thing. The question is, are we doing enough of the right thing? And before that, I was working on the Olympics for four years, which was a magical time. I think as a country, we peaked in 2012 and we will never be as good. Everything about that summer was incredible. Like the crime rate in London dropped you know we celebrated our diversity and we were properly represented by every facet of British society but yeah it was an amazing time and then very quickly after that the whole sort of EU stuff started happening and then David Cameron won his second term and quickly our discourse just went so downhill it was quite scary how quickly we went from the euphoria of the Olympics and how celebrated that was to like well why don't we just privatize the NHS because it's not fit for purpose and it's like we just did a whole thing in front of the whole world, telling them how great the NHS is, and yet the whole time there was these people working behind the scenes to like try and dismantle it. It's it's
1: mad. There's a really interesting thing about the Olympics that like every time there's a, a lobby to get a city chosen, there's a massive grassroots activist push to not get that city because every time the olympics comes to a city the people that benefit from it are not the people that live in that city to give boris johnson his dues or or not him but it is amazing the olympic park itself but in terms of like the uh, homelessness and the people they evicted so that they could get journalists in the olympics almost like is this one thing that's amazing. And then in the background, there's all these darker things are happening. And you can imagine Boris Johnson just kind of trying to subtly get things in place for whatever he was going to do next. It's
0: Yeah, it's incredible. Like I, re- I remember um, I-, I was seeing a lady at the time and she was a SOAS graduate. And so she was, you know, very radical and, and in, in terms of thinking, and she was telling me like how bad the Olympics was. And I was very much sort of like, you know, pro Olympic, And I'd never heard an, an anti-Olympic argument in my life. But I remember actually just going, huh, never thought about that. In a lot of cities like Beijing, for example, the whole Olympic legacy didn't do what we did. So the legacy of our Olympics was very much built in from the beginning. It was part of our bid and it remained part of our planning and everything like it was constantly there. And they kept a team on to make sure to deliver that legacy. But that didn't happen in all cities. And I think it becomes a massive albatross across a lot of cities, a lot of countries next. Because, for example, if the Olympics had gone wrong and it became this massive, not cost-effective thing, the whole country would have had to share that cost, not just London. And so for a lot of countries, it becomes, it becomes this white elephant. So yeah, uh, it, was, it was interesting to so then you know, meet people in London, meet completely different perspectives because people had gone to SOAS, which was this radical uni where people were thinking more radical things that I didn't even know existed.
2: You talk a lot about your faith in your book and also, in, mm. obviously, in your stand-up. Has your relationship with your faith changed over the years?
0: In terms of belief-wise, no, like obviously I went through that phase of like genuinely questioning. I did not have like a crisis of faith or like, oh my God, this is this real? But that's sort of like, okay, now just sit back. Do you believe in this? Why do you believe in it? Do you, are you now believing in it because you're brought up in it and it's a traditional thing? And you know, that I came to the conclusion that yes, I believe in this. But you know, discipline is different, I think, to belief. And you know, Islam is quite a dogmatic religion, it has a lot of rules. Growing up in the West in 21st century sometimes makes it difficult to follow every single rule rigidly to the letter of the law, Islamic law, um, and so sometimes discipline isn't always there for all the rules. But in terms of actual belief, that hasn't changed. But my discipline has wavered. Like sometimes it's been really good, sometimes not as good. But I'm in a good place at the moment where like I've started praying five times a day again, uh, which I'm really happy about. But yeah, I don't I don't really ever have a crisis of faith, but. Oh, there was, a, there was an awful phase on Twitter, I think, it was, I think it was about 10 years ago, the early part of the last decade, where just like constantly like atheists who just want to argue with people who believed in religion. And it just saw, looking back, it was so tedious. Because it's like, all right, you don't believe in it. Cool, wicked. I wish I just wish I'd done that. Uh, but there's just constantly this tedious argument with like, and not so much atheists, but like anti theists, like people who actively made it that identity to not believe in something, which I always thought was a bit weird.
1: This is interesting because I'm an atheist. I was kind of a agnostic who believed in something. Then I became an anti-theist and now I call myself a do-not-give-a-shittist because yeah. I don't believe there's anything, but I also don't really care and I'm happy to be proven wrong. But I was one of those anti-theists. I didn't argue with people on Twitter, but I think it's an interesting thing because I've come out the other side and I'm just like... Ugh. It is that thing, isn't it? You're like... Oh, so tedious,
0: it. wasn't it? <laughs> but
1: the thing is, it's not... I think the thing about anti-theism is, I know about the idea that it's weird to be inherently anti-something. But the problem is that religion dictates so much of our lives, even if you don't practice it or believe in it. Like, you live in, quote-unquote, a Christian country... That's dictating your life, even though you are Muslim. Mm. That's weird. And then we go to a different country and Islamic laws or Buddhist laws are dictating. And then America, which is supposed to be a non-religious country, is like the most Christian. And I sort of like, I think that's where anti-theism comes from. But I do know what you mean. It just became really big, didn't it? With the like... um Oh, what was his name? The guy who Bill Maher or sorry, who used to oh yeah run Bill Maher yeah Bill yeah
0: Ma. I find him so tedious.
1: I think that's when I started to realise that the men who were doing this and they were always men.
0: Yeah, like him and Sam Harris is a really problem. Sam as well.
1: Harris, yeah. i preferred lawrence krauss who did the universe from nothing just because he was all about the excitement of science as opposed to yeah 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 yeah. but i yeah i went down there and then went this is just it's just tiring and then somebody that i was living with at the time went further down that road and is now into like the ben shapiro's and the um
0: it um, was a gateway It it was a gateway to that world
1: and you either decided what the fuck am i doing Or you went further down. And then what's weird is you become part of the Ben Shapiro's and the um,
0: Jordan 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 Peterson's who were
1: weirdly like super religious. So it's weird how these anti-theists always end up.
0: Some people have like quite extreme, extreme personalities. Um, And so like our cousin of mine, was who's in the book, he has quite an addictive personality. So he is now, like, he's an imam at the mosque. But for a long time, like, he was just kind of a bit off the rails because that's who he is. He does everything to, like, a really extreme, like, so, like, if he's going out, clubbing or whatever, like, he was in that lifestyle. But now he's like, yeah, now this is what I do. And he's really, really taking it, to, taking it on board and stuff. But as I'm kind of more, like, in moderation, always drifting through things, going, yeah, I'll do a bit of that. You know, I'm tired of that now, I'll do a bit of that. Never going too deep into it.
2: It's interesting you should say that because one side of my family were brought up in a cult. I've never thought about it in the way that, you know, if you have an addictive personality, you might go too deep into something. I know that a lot of people that end up in cults, you ask them why they chose to join. Because if you're born into it, it's kind of, you know, there's that's a different um, playing field. But if you choose to join, Often the answers are something along the lines of, I just didn't want to have to think anymore. I didn't want to have to think about what was right and what was wrong. I wanted somebody to tell me what to do. So I've never really been, as you say, Holly, sort of the flip side of it to that extreme. But I would question how often people question their faith and make their own decisions in relation to, you know, is that an out-of-date law, was that written, you know, So so rules in Judaism, for instance, some of them were because it was a tribal religion and you have to look at it and be like, okay, how does this fit in my life today in this modern world?
1: You're right, Tez, about addictive personalities. And I think that draws people in. And when you look at what's going on with YouTube, which is radicalising people, really, it does stem from the same kind of thing that all started last decade, with the radical theism particularly in America of like what's happening with the Republican Party and then Mm. the anti-theism and they've all just become one big white supremacist blob where all these people who loved the Sam Harris's now love Jordan Peterson and you're like but Jordan Peterson is literally like a radical Christian patriarchal man and you grew up reading the God Delusion (laughs) like how does this
2: work
0: yeah but then even like did you ever follow Richard Dawkins on Twitter? Or did you, were you aware of his Twitter work? So awful. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's when a lot of sort of anti-theists, people that I knew kind of just turned off it a bit because they were like, oh, this is a gateway into bigotry. That there are some arguments that Richard Dawkins is making that are so unnuanced and so stupid that it is borderline bigotry. But if you go deeper down that rabbit hole, this is where people have ended up in 2021 is Charlottesville. Not to, like, you know, pay a board brush, but there was definitely a gateway.
1: It is really interesting that if we're talking about what decades mean, the 90s was investing money into everything. The noughties were like, this is quite intense. We're actually going to war. And then the teens were us trying to deal with the last two decades of like, OK, so now we're kind of used to being at war, but it doesn't feel like it's at war because we're not mm. the ones dying. Mm. And now we've hit the 20s and it's like, ha <laughs> Everyone's radical.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, you're on one side or the other, and if you ever make an argument that sounds like the other side, then Lord help you. Get
1: over that fence immediately. Would you consider yourself like a kind of moderate Muslim, or
0: no? I actually hate that word. Um, but it's a good question though, because I think moderate Muslim was a phrase invented. I don't, actually I don't know who came up with it. To be fair. I think it's a way of, that sort of old-fashioned, you're alright, you can stay, but these other guys, I'm Muslim, like a mainstream Muslim, I don't think Islam allows for the excesses of, you know, the ISIS and Al-Qaeda's and all that sort of stuff, you know, parts of it are quite conservative and trying to square that with, you know, most Muslims in this country who went to university find their camp in left-wing spaces. And so the cognitive dissonance with that constantly in your head is a really really interesting thing as well but you can't have an honest conversation about that because no one allows new ones
1: yeah i've fallen into my own trap because the word moderate really annoys me as well because you get all these people saying i'm a moderate and moderate is best and it's like well at the moment being a moderate means allowing like, climate change to only slightly yeah. kill us and actually the moderate response would be considered radical in our Overton window. Maybe what I really mean is, would you consider yourself kind of like um, a left-wing Muslim?
0: Like I definitely believe in mainstream Islam, but then sort of, yeah, I think there's definitely some cognitive dissonance. I think I've got to the point in life where I'm like, everyone who cares about stuff has to sit back and think, I think this is now for the next generation to handle. I think this is now for them to lead. Because I'm on TikTok and there's these spaces where I'm on where it's just young, Muslim women just taking the out of Muslim men. And obviously they're talking about yes. people their age because that's who they deal with. But some of it, I'm like, Oh my God oh my God, okay, first of all, and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what stop <laughs> that. Like, just let them argue with each other. Like, you're now an uncle about to comment on some, like, 20-year-old who's probably having a go at some boy maybe she had a dealing with at university. Like, just stop. Just let them deal with it. Why am I nearly 38-year-old me? She's going, no, well, actually, let them, let them <laughs> argue it out.
2: We've talked before about how we're pretty certain that when we get to our 60s we'll be doing things and our our kids will be saying things like oh you can't say that anymore mum they
0: already are (laughs) like it depends i think i think because we work in the arts we are kind of at the cutting edge of liberal discourse and so we are constantly kept updated if you had gone from university to like a, a job in the city you'd have a different way of thinking. You wouldn't, like if I stayed in Blackburn my whole life and stuff, i would probably be a lot more bigoted than I am because I didn't go out there and meet people and probably would still be morally the same sort of person but then didn't go out in the world and learn about things and people challenging me on pre-existing views. Like, you know, to be perfectly honest, I'm getting my head round the whole trans argument i would probably say yeah i'm pro-trans movement and stuff but there's parts of it that i don't understand that i just have to show up and be like just try and understand it because this is so far removed from any experience that i have i don't have any close friends who are trans so like usually like i'd meet gay people and that was how i'd be able to like humanize something that i'd only seen on tv or something i'd be like oh this is a person that i now know and blah 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 that's what it means but i didn't have that growing up i didn't have that in terms of trans people so there's a whole thing that i have to learn and stuff to me it's not as black and white as race because that's literally black and white so to try and learn that and try and unlearn 35 years of conditioning and whatever is really, really interesting. And I think, I think sometimes liberals do a disservice to people because we are at the cutting edge of conversation and at the cutting edge of new ideas and new language. We forget that actually most of the country aren't. And so we find ourselves often shouting at people online and it's like, but some of it is just new ideas that they haven't come across. And the first time they come across it is maybe accidentally putting their foot in it and then just getting shouted at. I think this clarity came to me during the EU referendum. The further you berate them, especially the, insult their intelligence, the more they will just be further entrenched in their views. And I think that becomes a point I'm really, really interested in. When does activism become borderline counterproductive? There is a line where like, actually, the more you shout at someone, the more they're going to vote for Trump. Where is that? Where is that line? I think i'm fascinated by it
1: one of the main things we talk about in this podcast is uh when do you want to be right and when do you want to be useful sometimes you're like you're so far gone it's it's a waste of my time i'm just going to be right and walk away because you know some people are always going to be bigoted and always going to support trump and they just don't want to learn but most people are not so when do you go okay I might not get to come out of that being like, pat myself on the back, I'm right. But I might have planted a seed to actually make somebody eventually maybe want to come mm. and engage. And that's something that we're really interested in. Also, I think you need both. You sort of need some activists just being like, this is how it is, no debate. And then you need those people being like, here's where I bring you into the debate. And then you Let's need Let's talk
2: people. about our feelings and, and all yeah, yeah. not shame each other.
0: But I think the problem is that the people who are pushing the discourse shame the people who are trying to do the sort of like, come on, guys, let's try and have a conversation with these people and stuff. And then the problem is that those two people keep fighting with each other. And yeah. a friend of mine said to me that the left is going to eat itself. That's yes. why it will never win. And the right will just be like, as much as they might disagree with each other, they're like, let's just win.
1: And they don't throw each other under the bus. Like, this yeah, past year yeah, has yeah, just yeah, been yeah, Tories yeah, yeah. fighting with Tories fighting with the Tories. But the thing is, at the end of the day, they refuse to fire each other. Whereas yeah, yeah. Labour was literally trying to get its own leader out for ages. And you just sit there and you go, we need to stop having these conversations so openly. Like, we're literally broadcasting our own cracks.
2: In in terms of the more extreme way of dealing with it and the kind of more empathetic way, I do think you need to have experience of both sides and to acknowledge the experience you have of both sides, whereas you have an experience of oppression and you also have an experience of privilege, because then you can understand what it feels like to feel attacked. And you can also understand what it feels like to be angry or upset by the way you've been treated because of some part of you. Do you think that your own experiences of oppression have made it easier for you to understand your own prejudices.
0: Definitely. Like, you know, I grew, I grew, I grew up a full-blooded male and stuff and, you know, raised in the patriarchy as we as we know and understand it and stuff. So when arguments about inequality towards women were made to me, the easiest way for me to understand them, and not that they're exactly the same, but the easiest way for me to understand them and to emphasise with them was to view it through the lens of being brown, being Muslim and but like the prejudices and bigotry that I experienced when, when, when obviously women start talking about their experiences and you're like, oh, okay, because of what I can understand through experiences that I went through and the way I understand the world as a brown man, as a Muslim man, and the way people talk about us, the way the media write about us, uh, direct and indirect. And indirect is always more difficult than direct because direct you can, you can speak to, but indirect is difficult to explain to people who don't experience the same thing.
1: Um... it's those microaggressions isn't it I feel like most people sort of understand that using the n words is not good using various slurs against muslim people is not good but it's having to explain to somebody that the way that you're looked at um as a I'm, I'm a straight-passing gay woman, so I'm a lot luckier than a lot of, like, butch people, but I know the difference between somebody who's looking at me with a side-eye because they figured out that I'm holding my girlfriend's hand and not my sister's hand, and explaining that to somebody is a lot more difficult than a guy spat in my face because I'm gay. I think that's what we're facing yeah, now, yeah, yeah, I,
0: yeah.
1: particularly older generations. I-
0: there, there was a shallow explanation of prejudice. In this country, I think, you know, the most un-PC person or whatever, if they heard someone say the N-word or the P-word or the F-word or whatever in public, they would be shocked and appalled by it and would probably even challenge it. But there's a generation, and, and, and this again comes to like people who live their life offline, which is still most people. They haven't had the language and the experience around dealing with notions of privilege, notions of microaggressions and all these. This is all new language for them. And suddenly things were thrust upon people such as white privilege. And it was never fully explained. It was never part of their learning growing up for them. Prejudice was calling someone a bad word. You don't do that because that's not who we are. That is wrong. But when it came to like institutional prejudice or institutional racism that was never taught to people and some people embrace it but other people are like "I'm just people are not sympathetic to people who live their lives offline who don't understand these arguments because they just have never been conditioned into them
1: and we're, we're approaching this like weird time where i think pretty soon there won't be as many people who live their life offline or as yeah. offline
0: yeah no completely i i think i think I'm thinking about it a lot more because I've, I've moved back home into my working class British Muslim Pakistani life that I knew growing up and stuff the sort of conversations that I see online people wouldn't even understand half of it if I went to the friends that I grew up with and played football with growing up and if I said to them you know so what do you think as a cisgender man they would literally not know what I was talking about and so I think sometimes we make the mistake that everyone has the same language and everyone is coming from a similar understanding but they just they're not
2: It just makes me think of the reasons we ended up with Brexit and everyone was so surprised about it. And it's the sort of forgotten parts of the country that are just living completely different lives.
1: You know, you're saying about these people who aren't online and stuff. And I think your book will be an interesting thing for either people from the community that you grew up with and then people who have never, you know, had an insight into the kind of thing that you grew up in. And it's interesting that you say about activism as well. When does activism become bad? Because, Kate, we have a question about activism.
2: We always like to ask people three very, very important questions. The first question is, do you feel like an activist? Would you consider yourself an activist?
0: Um, no, I'm probably like a borderline slacktivist, actual activism, which I believe should exist in the real world, mobilization, energy, time, money, if you have it, that's not who I am. I'm sort of like, you know, I'll send a couple of tweets that are right on and witty and we get good engagement and might get people talking or whatever. And I've done my bit. That's who I am. I'm not an activist, not a guy putting his body on the line. I honestly think that term has been massively abused by people who've learned how to use Photoshop. I look at someone like Ayo Caesar online. I don't know how she describes herself, but I think she's an activist.
1: Is this um, is this Ash Sarkar?
0: Her Twitter handle, yeah. She's Ash, amazing. Ash, yeah, so Ash like I could not deal with what she goes through, and neither would I want to. She's incredible, and there are people like her, probably unfortunately, on both sides of the fence who are proper activists, who ask the difficult questions, mobilise, and as I said, I don't, you know, I've met her a couple of times, but I don't know how she'd describe herself. That's not who I am. I have thought about this a lot over the last couple of years, and I'm like, okay, so you're either an entertainer or you're an activist, make a choice. And I think I've decided to be an entertainer. Hmm. But the things that I wanna say in my, through my entertainment are things that I care about. And I think people confuse that with activism.
1: But Yeah, I guess it's about like not wanting to dilute what activism is. We
2: need people that start conversations and allow for conversations to happen, and then we need the people that are actually putting themselves on the line and actually making a huge difference.
0: I, I think it's all useful. It all helps. It's all great, but I think just stop calling yourself an activist. I think.
2: But you do yeah. what you can, don't you? So.
0: Of course, of course, and and also like you have to be mindful of people's energies and people's mental capacities. Not everyone has the capacity for the fight. Not everyone is built for the fight. And, and that's fine.
2: Yeah. So we like to ask all of our guests this, um, no pressure. What's, What's your favourite favorite Disney, Disney, movie? Disney movie? That was
0: okay. Oh, there's only one right answer. This, this is a question I ask on stage, you know. No way! It's a question that I ask the audience on stage.
2: Oh, do it to us, do it to us. Okay. Is
0: that gonna work? Um, <laughs> hey. Um, what is your favorite Disney film of all time?
2: Oh,
1: uh, I think maybe mine actually fluctuates, but currently maybe Frozen
2: or Frozen Two. No, that's, that's,
0: that's, in, that's incorrect. Um, okay, <laughs> what is your what is your favorite Disney film of all time?
2: Beauty and the Beast.
0: That's also also not. That's correct. definitely um, and incorrect. Then, and then and then what we'd we'll do is then obviously because there's only two of you, that's the end of the conversation. But I would keep going through people until they eventually said the right answer, uh, which is The Jungle Book.
2: Ooh. Ah why
0: that's never been asked before so that yeah really, well. caught me, really caught me off guard here because i don't know how to, i don't really have to justify my opinions
2: um it's a good opinion though it's a, it's it's a great a, opinion it's, we
1: we've never had anyone say the jungle book we really? went through a big lion king phase last season everyone uh, saying the lion king uh, had a couple of aladdin's uh, we've had some mulan's um mulan's
2: great
0: mulan is good it's not in my yeah i, I just think the jungle Book, pound for pound it has the best songs
1: yes agreed including um, your drag song
0: oh hello i think i think it yeah that was possibly actually possibly actually um also i just love the story i think it's really well done i think the humor's great um i love all the characters blue reminds me of my dad I, and i probably am morphing into blue myself um, <laughs> just, just an absolute man child i think it's great i think it's really well paced and also the you do you know like all of the um animals all of the names are actually the Hindi word of the animal.
1: Oh, cool. So, That's for amazing. example,
0: Colonel Harti, means elephant, Bagheera means panther, uh, and Mowgli means go back to where you came from. <laughs> That is the end of that routine. So That's I just, brilliant. I just, did, I just did the whole routine for you. Now you right.
2: can't do it on live at the Apollo because it's already on the first <laughs> podcast. Well, we'll have um, to PayPal
1: you like seven pound fifty. <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, yes,
2: please. So
1: basically, we psychoanalyse it. If you think about it, it's kind of perfect considering like this book that you've got. It's about kind of who you are based on where you come from and how you were brought up. So like Mowgli mm. was brought up in this one situation that is unlike most. Uh, well, I guess in that respect, he was literally brought up by like wild animals. But um, Raised by wolves. Yeah. Um, but, you know, your book is about the people and the place that you grew up in and how that affects who you are, what you believe and what you stand for. I think that's kind of like a it's kind of a perfect one, Tez.
0: Thank yeah. you.
1: And um, of course, we I'm know gonna, what your drag song that. is. I'm going that.
0: Go on, yeah. what is my drag song? Because there's, there's two options here now. And I'm gonna judge you on which one you would choose because there's there are two options here.
2: Oh, there's three. I reckon. One
0: well, what, what what are the three? There's bare necessities. Yeah,
2: that's the obvious choice. But then there's you've the got King, the, the King Louis song. Yeah. The the King Louis. But then you've got the song that the elephants sing when they're marching up and down. Oh
0: yeah, that is the other You could song march
2: like up and dun, down dun, dun, the stage dun, dun, on dun. all fours. I don't
1: know. No, you know what? I was thinking that it would be the King Louis, but actually, you're right, Bare Necessities would be a perfect oh God, drag yeah. queen lipstick song. It would be perfect.
2: Because yeah. he does all the scrubbing. It's but great. in
0: the King Louis song, he dresses up and he wears the grass skirt and, and the coconut. On his face and stuff. It's very. You
1: could do a nice. mashup. I was gonna say maybe your type five. So is your next queen. bit, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, or maybe like if I get to the final, I get to sing two songs.
1: Maybe your drag name is something about like um Mowgli
2: or something.
0: What, what about Tezabel?
2: Tezabel. Oh, you've thought about this. I like that. Tezabelle, in this world that is frankly falling to pieces around us, can you give us a little bit of sunshine to end the podcast on?
0: So my, my niece, it was her third birthday last Sunday, and she is massively into dinosaurs, specifically T-Rex. And it started, it started <laughs> off from my sister distracting her and putting T-Rex songs on TV, which are very much in the vein of Baby Shark. Uh, and so she got massively into this and so she always, whenever I'm watching something on TV, so it was like, T-Rex, poor T-Rex, and it's really annoying. So my sister was like, can you try and get her off this T-Rex thing? And, and so me being a maverick decided to do it my own way. And so what I thought I would do is put her off T-Rex by scaring her. And so what I did was I showed her the compilation of the T-Rex from all the Jurassic Park films. Man, she was like two and like three quarters at this point. Oh my god, and and it, it didn't work. She doubled down. So, what <laughs> happened after that was, whenever she asked for T Rex, she didn't want the cartoon song anymore, she wanted Jurassic Park compilations of T Rex. And I was like, This has not worked at all. <laughs> this child might be a psychopath. And then I thought, Okay, there's one final way now to like the support of this T Rex thing. And this is on my Instagram feed, so you can go and look at it. On her birthday, I ordered a T Rex inflatable costume oh mate amazing yeah so, so i dressed up and i came down the stairs and into the room and she was just a mixture of petrified and excited and she was just i just the the, the video I've, I've, I've overlaid the jurassic park theme over the video and inserted some like t-rex rose to make the video more exciting and fun for the TikTok instagram thing <laughs> but she went home and the next day she's just saying to her mum mamu which means uncle in punjabi He's like, Mamu, rah, 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 hmm. and I was like, oh, that's so cute, but it also didn't work.
2: <laughs> that's that's me- absolutely delightful. We're, we're going to give you a bit of time now to go and sit outside um, oh, yes. after we do the plugs. Plugs, 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 plugs. Holly come up with a song, but she mainly improvises it. That was the song. Um, that was okay. Cool.
1: Five years of improvising professionally, and that's all I could come up with.
2: <laughs> I think it's great. I think one it day was... I'll just come in with like a countdown version of plugs, and you won't know what hit you. So,
1: uh, um, yeah, what are your plugs, Tez?
0: I've written a book called The Secret Diary of a British Muslim, aged Dead and Three Quarters. Hopefully, by the time you get to this point, I don't need to talk about what it is because you've, you've already heard about it. It's out, it's available in hardback from most places where you'd like to buy books from and also in audio if you like the sound of my jib i recorded the audiobook myself so yeah <laughs> that's also available to buy from audible so if you have an audible account or if you like to make one as you get that free book a month i think so why not make it my one so yeah i'd love for people to buy it and read it and let me know what they think about it and also i have a tour coming up which starts in september and it's a nationwide tour so just go on my website tezilias.com you will get the dates for that and yeah come along to a show
2: amazing
1: we are at Diversify Pod on Twitter, yes, yeah, and Diversify Podcast uh, on Instagram. Uh, we have two other seasons. You can get us on iTunes and Spotify and stuff.
2: Thank you so much, Tez. It's been really, really great. Pleasure, 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 pleasure. Um, what's your favorite Pixar film?
1: Ooh, oh. Toy Story. Probably.
2: Yeah. I'm trying to, I far. get confused
1: by what. Which one's a Pixar? But I think probably
2: Toy Story. That's fair. Or a Bug's Life.
1: Oh, absolute classic that is underappreciated. Bug's What's Life is your favourite,
2: Taz. I
0: think it's. I think it's still Finding Nemo.
2: Oh, I forgot about. See, that's the thing. You I don't know what what a Pixar film. film is.
0: Yeah, there are some that are Pixar, and there's some that are just like Wreck-It Ralph looks like a Pixar film, but it's not. I see. <laughs> Top banter. Okay. Absolute top banter. <laughs>